Well, as this new year begins, we're going to be starting a new study in the book of 1 Peter. You'll find it near the back of the New Testament, just past the book of James. 1 Peter is a book that points us to the hope we have in troubling times, something that's very timely right now. As we look at the COVID crisis, as we look at the disunity that's in our country, You know, as hard as these things are, hard things have happened before. You can look back all throughout history, and just one example is during the Second World War when Hitler and Nazi Germany were spreading terror all throughout the world. Uh, Great Britain entered the war in September of 1939. And as they did, Germany began an intense bombing campaign there in England. And with every air raid siren that sounded, the anxiety and fear rose for the English people. And King George VI was the reigning monarch of the time, and he gave a message on that first Christmas of 1939 as England was in the Second World War. And in it, uh, maybe you saw the movie The King's Speech, and this was made on that speech that he gave on the BBC. And as he gave this speech, he reminded his people of the one true King Jesus Christ, who could provide peace and and, and real rest in troubled times. And as he concluded his speech, he ended with the preamble of a poem that his then 13-year-old daughter, Princess Elizabeth, who's now Queen Elizabeth, had given to him. And in this poem, which was written by Minnie Louise Haskin, it was originally titled God Knows, but it's now known by the title The Gate of the Year. The poem begins, And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. King George read those words to remind the English people that they were safe and secure when they were in the will of God. He was reminding them that God was their guide in the safe harbor in troubling times. As we turn to 1 Peter today, we're going to see words that are even greater and more encouraging that remind us of those truths, that God is our guide, God is our safe harbor. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, what we find there in verse 1 is like looking at the letter of a, that a, the envelope that a letter comes in. Because uh, what we find first is the sender is Peter, the apostle. It says an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the recipients are the scattered saints who reside as aliens throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You see the little postmark I put on there says uh, AD 63 through 64 because that's when this letter was written, sometime in that period, which was during the time that the intense amount of persecution was happening in the Roman Empire under Nero. Peter was right in the middle of it, as we're going to find in 1 Peter 5.13. He says he's writing from Babylon. And Babylon is a code name. It's a literal city, as we saw in our study of the book of Daniel, but it was the code name used by Christians to speak of Rome, as you can find by reading the, the book of Revelation. And the Christians called Rome Babylon to try to lessen some of the persecution and impact that they were facing. This persecution is tied to the story you've probably heard about Rome burning when the Roman emperor 
uh, was said to fiddle as Rome burned. Now, many historians will believe that it was Nero who set the fire. And what he wanted to do was start a small fire in an old section of the city because he wanted to clear out some of the old homes in order to build monuments and a palace. But his little arson job got out of control. And it spread through major sections of the city, leaving thousands upon thousands homeless. And as the people's anger grew, Nero needed someone to blame, so he said it was Christians who had set the fire. And this became the catalyst for even greater persecution. They were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. They were tied to chariots, and they were dragged through the streets to their death. But Nero's favorite way of killing Christians was to dip them in tar, and he would tie them to a pole, and he would uh, put them in his garden areas, and he would light them on fire to light his evening parties with the burning bodies of these Christians. And as all of this is happening, as this persecution is intensifying, we're told here that Christians are scattering throughout the empire. The Greek word used here is the diaspora, and that was spoke of the dispersion or scattering of these Christians. Now, Nero and those working on Satan's side thought they were winning. They thought they were killing Christians and eliminating the church, but all they were really doing was pouring water on a grease fire because they spread the gospel and the believers all throughout the empire. If you read in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, you'll see there where Paul had tried to go to Bithynia earlier, but the Holy Spirit had blocked Paul from doing so. But now believers are going into this area with the gospel. Uh, in Acts 2.9, we see on the day of Pentecost, some of the first believers, those who became Christians, were from some of these areas we're reading about, as Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia are mentioned there. There were small communities of Christians, but now they were growing as these other believers were joining the church and strengthening the work that was happening in these areas. And as Peter writes to encourage these scattered saints, he identifies himself as an apostle. And he does this to establish his credentials and his authority so that the Christians would know this letter they're receiving is from God, written through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So the commands and the encouragement, the promises can be trusted. Uh, The word apostle means one who is sent. And it describes the role that these first leaders had as a messenger or a proxy. It's much like an ambassador that we see in our day. We send men and women overseas as ambassadors, as messengers of our home country to carry uh, our agenda, our messages, other things to other nations in the world. Now, as I mentioned that, I want us to understand that as Christians, the country we represent is not America. And I know many are worshiping online, and we have those from other nations around the world uh, worshiping with us this morning. So whenever I talk about America, insert your country there. And so as you think in terms of being an ambassador, uh, our citizenship is not America. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're told in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christians, what we need to understand is This is not our home. We're just passing through. We're here temporarily as residents for a period of time, and then we go to our true home where our true citizenship is at. And Paul makes this clear as he writes, I'm sorry, Peter, as he writes here and says, to those who reside as aliens. He uses the Greek word peripedidimois, and this is a word that means an alien, a stranger, a sojourner. It it literally describes one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives, 
And so again, this gives us a picture of our role as believers. There are many times that I've gone overseas to teach in seminaries and theological institutes and churches. And when I've gone into these foreign countries before COVID, I would go at least once, if not twice a year to different countries. And as I went to those countries, I was a peripedidimus. I was a stranger, a foreigner coming to reside alongside the natives. Now, when I went, as I said earlier, I don't go as an American saying to these pastors and believers and, and others, this is how you live as an American. I was going to teach the word of God, how to communicate it, what the doctrines were, the truths, and how they as Christians can live according to the walk that God calls us to. And so whether you have ever gone overseas or you go across the street or to the cubicle or desk next to you, when you're at school, you are to be an ambassador carrying the message of the gospel of the country we represent, not America, but that of Jesus Christ as we're trying to develop uh, relationships that ultimately lead to somebody having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, right now, this is so important as we need to remember right now where our loyalties lie. If you read social media, it's blown up and it's on fire and relationships are being destroyed. People are taking sides. I represent the donkey or the elephant. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, we represent the Lamb of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. And who and what we should be presenting to people right now is the hope, the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the one who is the Prince of Peace. You know, less than two months ago, we finished a series in the book of Daniel. And you remember Daniel, the setting of that book was that Daniel and his friends and other Jews had been carried away into captivity. And as they were there, they were living under an oppressive regime, under a a wicked king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And right now, I'm reading online where people say, well, Nebuchadnezzar's in the White House right now. Or others are saying, well, in about two weeks, we're going to have Nebuchadnezzar in the White House. Whether you think that or not, you need to live as Daniel and his friends did. If you think Nebuchadnezzar's in the White House or he's about to be, then do as Daniel did and his friends. Live for God. Stand for him. Be the light in the darkness. When I see people rioting, it makes me sick. When I see banners that are being carried in the name of Jesus in the midst of riots. And others look at that and they say, well, that's what Christians are about. Friends, as I said earlier, we don't represent the party of the elephant or the donkey. Whether it's the riots at the Capitol or those who are rioting for social justice at a Black Lives Matter, it's wrong. That is not what God calls us to do. In fact, as you look at what Jesus says, uh, we find an example as he himself uh, said this in John eighteen thirty six when he was on trial and stood before Pilate as his own life was on the line uh, under an unjust uh, sentence. He said to Pilate in John eighteen thirty six, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Our citizenship is in heaven." And later, as we'll see in this series, in 1 Peter 5, 12, uh, Peter says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Friends, I want you to remember the context of this letter is persecution. 
It's Christians who were literally being dragged through the street, lit on fire, losing their lives. And in the midst of all of this desperate uh, and troubling times, Peter writes these words. He knew there would be a temptation to try to blend in. Some Christians are turtling up right now, right? We're going silent. We're, we're going undercover. We don't want anybody to know that we're a believer. We're trying to avoid all that's happening. But Peter reminds them and us today, we are strangers. We are to be different. We live in a world that is not our home. We are aliens, sojourners who are here. And what Peter will tell us, as we're going to see going through this book, is how to live godly lives in a world that is against us as believers. Most of us will not face the same severity of persecution for our faith. But brothers and sisters in Christ, persecution is coming. And it's going to get worse and worse. I've been in countries around the world where I have sat at dinner tables and in homes with people who have been in prison and who have had loved ones martyred for their faith. I have seen those who have gone through persecution. Years ago when I was in Romania and again when I was in Russia and another time when I was in China, I had Christians in all of those countries tell me, Pastor Roger, we are praying for you in America to suffer the persecution that we suffer. And you're like, what? Thank you, right? Well, actually, yes, thank you. Because they want us to be purified. They want us to understand what it means to stand for Christ. I've been in countries where people will travel literally for days just to hear the gospel. When you go to a church service, they're there the entire day because many of them have traveled 10, 12 hours and they will be there listening to four, five, six preachers in a row. And we as Christians at 30 minutes are tapping our watches going, doesn't he know it's time for lunch? We've got to beat the Baptist to the buffet. You know, people will memorize scripture on little scraps of paper. When you meet with them, they will say to you, they'll take out a pen and paper and say, tell me all the scripture, you know, because that's the only Bible some of them will ever have. And many of us have Bibles collecting dust at home. And so when they said they're praying for us, they want us to be faithful. They want us to have deep roots Now, the Christians in this day were persecuted because they didn't embrace the values of the world. And as we live for the Lord, friends, we're going to find ourselves swimming upstream. Being a believer in the society and world in which we live in is counterculture. And it will lead to persecution. Friction comes when there is movement that rubs up against something. And as we read in 2 Timothy 3.12, we're told everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're somebody who likes to name and claim a verse, there's your life verse. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. If we're truly living for the Lord, there will be hard times. You can see the culture we live in. You can see the compromises, the accommodation that takes place. We had a great example of that last week. Before the Capitol riots, you'll remember, there was a congressman who prayed in the opening session of Congress. And many people saw the prayer and made a whole bunch of uh, issue about what I'll talk about at the end where he said, a woman instead of amen. But let me tell you about this congressman who prayed. That representative was Emmanuel Cleaver. The name Emmanuel literally means God with us. 
So here is a man who has a name pointing to the God of heaven. When Jesus Christ came at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. And not only does he have a Christian name, but he's an ordained United Methodist minister. And as this uh, Methodist minister offered a prayer, it wasn't in the name of Jesus. It was in the name of Brahma. Everybody was focused on what he said at the end, and they're missing the really bad stuff in the middle. He prayed in the name of Brahma. Brahma is the Hindu god of creation. They believe there's a triune god as well, and Brahma is supposed to be uh, one of the key gods of Hinduism. And they worship him as the god of creation. And this congressman said he is the monotheistic god who is known by many names and many faces. <laughs> the book of Acts tells us there's only one name by which we're saved. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he closed out his prayer by saying, Amen and a woman, to go with the newly passed house rule of removing any verbiage related to gender. Well, friends, this supposed minister should have known that the word amen has nothing to do with gender. It literally means so be it. When you pray amen at the end of a prayer or you call out amen when somebody said something, you're literally affirming it. You're saying, so be it. And it's our way of acknowledging and praying as Jesus Christ told us, when you pray, pray to God in heaven, God the Father, that thy will be done on earth. And what we're doing when we pray is saying, God, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And as you talk about earth, in Isaiah 5.20, God said there would be times when people will call evil good and good evil. It's happened in the past and it's happening in the day in which we live. And as we live for the Lord, some will label us as being narrow-minded or intolerant. We live in a cancel culture. And those are the deadly sins of our day to be called intolerant, to be called narrow-minded, to be a Christian. And there will be costs. Cancel culture means that you will lose opportunities and jobs and other things, and it can hurt and it can be costly. But I want you to remember what Paul said in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're here for maybe a hundred years. And then we go to our home in heaven. And God says, the way you have lived your life here on earth doesn't earn you entrance into heaven. That's by grace alone. But it does say the way you've lived your life here on earth will have ramifications for all eternity. Eternal rewards in the millennial kingdom, as we talked about in Daniel, and in uh, all that God has for us, the blessings that come as being a faithful man or woman who will hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And that's why Peter is encouraging these suffering believers not to focus on the trials they're facing in the world, but instead, he says, look forward to the hope that is theirs, the hope we have at our future home in heaven. At the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2, he talks about how we receive this citizenship in heaven. He says, for we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, what Peter drops on us here are two deep end of the pool issues of theology called predestination and election. And I can tell you we don't have time today to go into the depth of what this means. We could spend a week of Sundays and not fully cover all the predestination and election entails. 
But what's important for us to understand about these things today is Peter puts them here because he wants to remind these Christians that God chose them, that that they were secure in him. So what Peter is telling them is even with everything you can lose, even your lives, Christians, you cannot lose your life that God has given you called eternal life. You cannot lose your place in heaven. Jesus has purchased you by his blood. You have a secure home in heaven that can never be lost. We did nothing to earn our salvation. We can do nothing to lose our salvation. The Greek word that is used here for being chosen is eklektos. It's why we call this the doctrine of election. It means election or chosen. Now, some will try to explain the doctrine of election this way. We'll say, well, uh, Satan votes against us and God votes for us. So we cast the deciding vote. Now, while that sounds good, that's wrong. Because what that does, friends, is it makes Satan and us as a man or a woman equal to the sovereign God. Because we're saying our decisions can override his decision. But God's, when it comes to election, God's will will be done. Do you see that in Romans eight twenty nine through 30? It tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, there's election. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That speaks of when we get to heaven and we're made perfect. And what it says is the process will begin 100% of the time ending with the believer being home in heaven secure. God has a perfect record. As you think about election, you can picture one of these big electromagnets. I don't know if you've ever been to a scrapyard and seen one of these things moving over the piles. And what happens is when they turn that on, everything that has iron in it is drawn up to the magnet. Uh, aluminum, uh, trash, glass, all that doesn't come, but the, anything with this one property, Ferris property in it, will be drawn to the magnet. And so when we think of election, there is something that God does to the believer. And the Bible tells us that God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. And so this is the process. Now, the problem with this is that those who believe who would say, I'm an Arminian, and the word Arminian is a label for those who say, well, free will is paramount in our salvation. And so they say, well, how does free will work with election? If there's really this irresistible draw of all who are saved, then do we really have free will? Well, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, where the doctrine of election and predestination is also talked about, it tells us in Ephesians 1.9 that it is the mystery of his will. Mystery. You see, what it is is we are finite, limited people trying to understand an infinite God. And our minds cannot grasp all of who God is. And how he works. God tells us that in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There was a seminary professor who who once said, if you try to explain election, you might lose your mind. (laughs) But he goes on to say, but if you try to explain away election, you might lose your soul. How do these two things work together, free will and God's choosing or calling of us? They just do. It's a mystery. That's not a cop-out. It's what the scriptures tell us. 
If you look at what Jesus said in John 6.37, he says, all that my father gives to me will come to me. That's divine election. But he says, and the one who comes to me, that's our human response, will certainly not be cast out. You can read Acts 13.48. It says, and as many as been appointed to eternal life, there's divine election. It says they believed. That's human response. In 1 Peter 1, 2, uh, the Greek word translated as foreknowledge here is prognosis. Told you there's predestination and election. Now, the, the word prognosis is a literal translation of the Greek word prognosis. And it's what we use with doctors in medical science, right? If a doctor gives you a prognosis, he or she has studied your case, they've, test, they've run a bunch of tests, they've examined you, and then they give you this diagnosis, And what this means is it's caused some people to mistakenly say that predestination means that God uses his omniscience. That's a word that means God knows everything. So since God can see and know everything, they say, well, what God did was look ahead in time to see which of us would choose him. And then he essentially made his choice based on our choice. Now, again, the problem with that, again, is we're making ourselves sovereign. Because God is now dependent on our choice. He said, oh, Pastor Roger one day will accept my son, so he's one of mine. But that's not how it works. If God were dependent on us and reacting to our choice, God is not sovereign. We are. But the Bible is clear. God is the one who's in control. In John fifteen sixteen, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And as you read Ephesians 1.5, he says, we're told there he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, the word for predestined there is proresis. This is a different Greek word than prognosis. As you look at that, proresis means to be predestined. We find that in Ephesians 1.5, but prognosis was found in our passage. And so this word literally means to decide beforehand. So God didn't wait on our choice. He decided beforehand. And if you want to know how far back God made the choice, uh, read the very next verse in Ephesians 1.4 because it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Now this word for choosing that's used here is eklegomai. And it's in the aorist middle form. Now, stick with me. This is Greek grammar. I know it may be the glaze factor, the last thing that you remember, but I'm going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf here in a minute. If something's in the aorist form, what that means, it's a past completed action. It's done. It's already done. It's complete. And so when it comes to God choosing us, God has chosen us before the world was even formed. Now, it's also in the middle voice. And if you have a verb in the middle voice and you tie it with the subject in the accusative case, what that means, which is what we have there in Ephesians 1, what that means is both God is the actor and the one who acts on our behalf. Now, I said I know that can be confusing, so let me sum it up in the statement of a a wise older woman. There were two ladies who were listening to theologians debate this issue. And the one turned to her friend and said, I don't know what they're talking about. And this other lady said, "Uh, well, I've long ago settled this issue in my mind. If God had not chosen me before I was born, I'm sure that he would not have seen anything in me to have chosen me afterwards. Do you understand that? There's nothing you and I do that makes us worthy to be chosen by God. 
The Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you are here today or you're listening online and thinking you're going to be home in heaven because you've lived a good enough life that somehow you're worthy to have earned your way home to heaven, you're lost. The Bible is clear that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserves to be in heaven based upon how we've lived our lives. Romans 6.23 says what we've earned, the wages by how we live our life, it says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to peg God's omniscience, what he knows about us and what was going to happen to predestination and election, it's tied to Romans 5.8. Because what God knew was we would all sin, we would all fall short, we would all need a savior. Which is why it said in Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The question to be answered today is not whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist. Rather, it's have you responded to God's gift of grace? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. I mentioned this congressman earlier praying to a God of many names and many faiths, and that is not true because what we're told in, in the book of Acts in 4.12 is there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. If you're trying to do it on your own, remember there is an unrighteous, no, not one. And the very next verse in Romans 3.11 tells us there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. What that's telling us is left on our own, excuse me, left on our own, we would not seek for God. But the good news is God did not leave us on our own, but he called us and he came and he saved us. That's what Peter's telling us here when he says we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of God the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Friends, do you notice all three members of the Godhead, the Trinity, are mentioned there? You have the foreknowledge of God the Father. And what the foreknowledge of God the Father led to is where he said, I'm going to send my only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit in being that electromagnet that draws us to himself as John 6.44 goes on to tell us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit we see in 1 Peter 1.2 and, and again in 2 Thessalonians 2.13-14 where it says God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word sanctification literally means to be separate or set apart. And it's what's described when we're called to repent, where we're to separate ourselves, to to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus as our Savior. The word repent literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And what it describes is how we recognize, imagine you're there at the cross and you turn your back on God 
You've never accepted him and you're walking away from him. And repentance is where you realize I'm on the wrong road. I'm headed away from God. And you understand you need to stop, turn around and come to the cross and receive the gift of grace he has for you. That's what repentance is, a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. Now remember, you're not saved by your work. You're saved by the work that Jesus did on the cross as he died to pay the penalty of death for our sins. That's what it means here in 1 Peter 1, 2, where it says that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Those in the first century, remember this letter is written about 63, 64 AD. The temple in Jerusalem was not destroyed by the Romans until 70 AD. As they're reading this letter, they would understand perfectly the picture of being sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice. Because when you sinned, you went into the temple with the sacrifice. And you would come to the, uh, the balustrade separating the area of the priests. The men would bring their, their lambs and they would hold them around the neck as the priest would cut the, the, the throat of the lamb and the blood would run out through uh, the person's hands into a basin. And then it would be taken and it would be offered on the altar. And there was this sprinkling of a blood sacrifice to cover sin. Now it was not, it didn't remove it. It was, it was just a temporary covering. First of all, blood had to be shed. We're told that in Hebrews 9.22 where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But when it comes to the sacrifices that were offered, it says in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So how were our sins dealt with? Well, that's why Jesus Christ came. It's why as John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ, he said in John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the perfect and permanent sacrifice who could shed his blood to remove the penalty of death that you and I owed. It's why as he was dying on the cross, he said in John 19.30, It is finished. The Greek word is tetelestē. It literally means paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 tells us, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And this is what Peter points to. God the Father planned our salvation. Jesus Christ purchased our salvation. And God the Holy Spirit sealed our salvation. And as Peter describes what God did for us, he ends in verse 2 by saying, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And as Peter writes this, he uses something in Greek grammar that's called the optative mood. And this, this is a very rare form of a, a grammar rule that means it expresses a wish or a desire. Not like some of you or, you know, even me, I'd love to win the half a billion dollar lottery, right? I'm wishing I could win that lottery. Well, first you have to buy a ticket, so good luck with that. Um, this isn't that kind of wish. Like, gosh, I hope this would happen. Instead, what Peter is saying is, I want you to, 
I wish you would grasp the full measure of your blessing. He uses the Greek word plethuno here, which means to multiply or increase. It's translated in many texts as in the fullest measure. And the reason for that is in the optative mood, what it pictures is, think of a container that is being filled up and filled up to the fullest measure means it gets to the brim and then it starts overflowing. And it just keeps filling and overflowing. And what Peter says to these believers who are in a desperate time in the midst of darkness, he shines this bright light of hope and he says, listen, I know you're losing everything, even your lives in some cases. He says, but look, look at what God has for you. Look at the hope that is assured through your relationship with Christ. You will be with him in heaven. So stand firm for your faith. And friends, that is the the hope we have in our day. If you're discouraged and looking at the darkness in the world that is growing and thinking it's hopeless and what are we going to do, God says, we're not home yet, brothers and sisters. Our home is in heaven. And he says, stand firm. Be the light in the darkness. Demonstrate God's love to a world that needs to know about his love, about his hope. Remember, as Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And as Jesus said in John 14.1 through 2, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ who has placed your faith and trust in him, you have a home in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven, and when the time is right, God will come for us, whether through the rapture or calling each of us home when our days are done here on earth. If you're here today or you're worshiping online and you've never accepted God's gift of grace, you've never placed your faith and trust in him, Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And what that means is you acknowledge to God that you're a sinner. The word sin means you've missed the mark. You haven't been perfect. You've disobeyed God. You've disobeyed somebody at some point in time who you should have listened to, your parent, the policeman, speeding, whatever. That's all sin. And so what God says to us is we've all sinned. And because we're all sinners, we all owe a penalty of death. But Jesus Christ came and he took on flesh and blood so he could go to the cross and take our place and pay our penalty of death, shedding his blood to wash away our sins. And if you're ready today to receive him, to acknowledge your need for God to be your savior, for his son, Jesus, to be the one that you accept by faith, understanding he was who he said he was because he didn't just die on a cross. He rose from the dead three days later, showing he conquered sin and death. And if you will humble yourself and acknowledge that and receive his gift of grace to you today, you'll be made a part of his family. If you'd like to do that, I'm going to close our time with a prayer. There's nothing magic about the prayer. It's just your way of saying to God, I understand I'm a sinner. I understand my need for your son to be the payment. And I accept you, Jesus, today to be my savior. If you'd like to do that, whether you're worshiping online or here, you can do it in the privacy of your heart and mind. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You just have to humble your heart and receive Jesus as your Savior. If you'd like to do that, I invite you now to bow your heads with me. 
and pray this prayer. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm someone who hasn't lived a perfect life. And because of that, I recognize that I owe a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and took my place, going to the cross and shedding your blood to wash away my sins. I believe you're who you said you are, the Son of God, who conquered sin and death, as you showed by rising from the dead three days later. I accept your gift of grace today by making you my personal Savior. Thank you for the gift of eternal life, and thank you for welcoming me into your family. Would you help me now to live my life in a way that honors and glorifies you? I pray these things in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you prayed that prayer for the first time as you're leaving in a moment where you're exiting, please step out of the line. Just come to the front. Let me know so that I can help you understand what you just did, give you some materials to help you in your next steps to grow in your relationship with Jesus. If you're worshiping with us online, we'd love to get an email from you at waysidechapel.org, just letting us know so, again, we can follow up with you. Uh, For the rest of us who have already received God's great gift of grace, remember God calls us to be ambassadors, to live as strangers, aliens in a world. So as we scatter now, as we leave here and we go back to our homes, our neighborhoods, our places of business or school. Uh, Be ambassadors where you carry the good news of the gospel with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you for worshiping with us.